On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab, Moab shall be trampled down in, this place, in his place, as short straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls, will bring, will, will, walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to your word to hear from you. And we ask, Lord, that you would Humble us to hear well. Convict us where necessary. Exalt your triune nature through the gospel. And may we, Lord, grow in holiness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Advent, as I've already said, and the country comes together to celebrate what? Happiness, family, the year's end. We come to celebrate an unbreakable happiness. Our celebrations are not in the happiness itself, but the source of our entire happiness and our family's foundation is found in the long-awaited promise fulfilled. The long-awaited covenant come to a reality. Christmas is the celebration of the arrival of the seed from Genesis 3.15, the seed of Abraham, the son of Judah, the leader of the final exodus, the better Joshua, the rightful judge, the root of Jesse, the son of David, and the signet ring of God, which we saw last week in our book, the book of Haggai. Christmas for us is this wonderful celebration of the light coming into the world and the gospel becoming this reality to us. All the promises of God start to take their fulfillment in Christ uh, and have taken their fulfillment in Christ. So when we gather, where is our happiness? In the event that we're gathering in, in the food that's prepared for us, in the day that we gather on, in the, the people that surround us, in how successful our year has been? Or is it in Christ? Calvin wrote in the very early parts of his institutes, For until man feel that they owe everything to God, that they are cherished by his parental care, and that he is the author of all their blessings, so that nothing is to be looked for away from him, 
They will never submit to him in voluntary obedience unless they place their entire happiness in him. They will never yield up their whole selves to him in truth and sincerity. We see from Calvin, who learned this from the scriptures, that our entire happiness has to be in Christ in order for us to submit ourselves to him. We need to accept that everything we have is because he has authored it. Everything we have is owed to him. And when we come and celebrate, we do not celebrate something that can be changed by a dud meal or by the wrong day of work celebrating or by a lack of people that we're gathering because Christ is who we are satisfied by. Isaiah 25 is not usually, I don't think, a Christmas passage. But I wanted to set the set foundation for our Christmas celebrations to be ones that are not apathetic or on autopilot. And I want that to sort of flow from Christmas into next year as we think about our Sunday worship and our day-to-day family worship or our own personal devotions, the way we pick up the Word, the way we sing worship songs, everything. Let nothing be done in an apathetic way or on autopilot. Let's start with Christmas and make that our pattern for next year. That we would think about every word of the creed and confessions that we state on a Sunday. That our prayers would have thought and intellect behind them. That the lyrics of the song would mean something to us. That when we sing a line, we could say, I actually don't know if I believe that. Do we take that much notice that there could be a heretical line or a line you've never thought about in a song that you would stop singing mid-line? For many of us, we just sing what's written on the screen without thought. We want all that be done. Let all that be done be done with thoughts taken captive to Christ. Jared Longshore in his book on Proverbs speaks about the word equity and he says with the knowledge in Proverbs we can learn to be a person the same person of character no matter what day or week it is or who surrounds us. No matter what day of week it is or who surrounds us. And he's talking about a demeanour a joyfully glad demeanor. He says that in the book of Proverbs, there is knowledge there for us to have this character. So whether we are locked away in the closet, the private closet of prayer, or out in the open of public worship, we are the same. We are the same. When the Christmas party ends, and the cleanup is done, and the doors close, and all that remains is the people of your household, are we the same? That's what Proverbs says is a wise person. So let us start with Christmas to have a joyfully glad demeanor and an active process of thinking through everything that we say, do, and think. And we're going to break this passage up into four areas. Christ's abundance, Christ's unveiling, Christ's glad people, and Christ's enemies. And essentially, it's just the gospel. So Christ's abundance, verse 6. On this mountain, 
The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food of, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. If we were going through the book of Isaiah, we would have seen that at the end of chapter 24, the Lord of hosts is reigning gloriously. And then chapter 5 begins to show us to what this reign would look like here on earth. The question we must answer or ask and think about is, are we living in this now or is this something to come? Because often when we read of a feast, we're thinking of the future in the spiritual state or the eternal state. But then do we then water down the weight of what Christ accomplished on the cross? Because if there's an event throughout the whole of God's, or human history, but God's people's history that was the biggest event to ever happen, was the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and the, 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 the building of His church that is going to grow and extend to the ends of the earth. So when we read this, the context in which I believe Isaiah is writing is that the day that this is happening on, or at least started, is the day when Christ defeated the grave. We'll we'll pick that up a bit later on as well. That the world changed when Christ defeated the grave, and the world has been changing ever since because the gospel is something that's progressive and progressively changes us. We know that in sanctification and the world which we've seen through many of our books that we've been studying over the past year or so. And the context here is that there's a, that kings would throw meals. We see this in Esther 1. We, we, we see that, that the king of Persia throws a meal, and the idea of the meal was to make him look great. We also see this in Jesus' first miracle. When Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding in Canaan, who was going to be shamed? The bridegroom, the host of the... The, the, the party. If you didn't throw a good party, you were going to be shamed. Well, here we see that the meal that the Lord of hosts is going to throw is for the people. It's for all people. Not just the Jews. So Isaiah is being quite offensive here. He's offending all the Jews. In the very next verse, he says, all peoples, all nations. Not just you Jews. God is going to throw a feast that is going to satisfy all people and all nations. And if we see the description of this food, it is is good, rich, wholesome food. It satisfies you for hours, not minutes. We see that one of Jesus' most controversial lines comes in John 6, when he speaks about him being the bread of life. John 6, 48-41 says, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one day, uh, so that, that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that comes, came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life, for the life of the world is my flesh. And he goes on to say, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. And the people leave. If you read the end of chapter 26, they leave. So many disciples leave that he turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to go as well? 
That's how many people left. That Jesus would turn to the twelve and say, are you going to go as well? What Jesus is saying is he is better than the manna that came down in the wilderness. The manna that sustained the people in the wilderness, Jesus is going to satisfy completely us who have been in the wilderness of sin. Christ is all satisfying for his people. For all who the Father draws to him. The richness of the gospel message is rich food. It's a roast lamb with seasoned veg and plenty of butter. Not sugar and white bread that makes us feel hungry in moments, a moment's time. When we read of wine, the rich wine, it's meant to be wine that takes us to another place. Wine that is so flavorsome that you are drifting your mind to another place. It, it's literally there to imply that you've forgotten your sorrows and your sufferings. Not in drunkenness, because drunkenness is a sin, but in the way it satisfies you and it takes you out of the situation that you are in and to another place. We know that Jesus in Genesis 49.10 and 11, he, he, he is described as being the son of Judah, the scepter will not depart from your hand. He will have blood on his, in his eyes. His eyes will be as red as blood and he will wash people in wine. Sorry, I said red as blood, red as wine is what I meant. He will wash people in wine. In other words, he will make wine so abundant it will be like water, which he does in his miracle. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so abundant for us today. We don't need to be always waiting for everything to come. We have an abundance now. The feast is prepared for us now. The gospel is sufficient now. Our entire happiness can be in Jesus today and we can be satisfied. The problem isn't with the gospel, the problem is with us. We tend to not hear the truth of the gospel. And in, in fact, much of the gospel that is preached today is just sugary snacks. It's feel-good messages that center around you and not on Jesus. It avoids sin. <clears throat> and it fills in deep theology with psychology. The amount of preachers out there that know psychologists over theologians honestly blows my mind. We don't need this sugary, watered-down gospel. We need the richness and fullness of the gospel that changes lives and brings about a joyful gladness that's promised in the scripture. We need the full gospel. And really the rest of this passage gives us sort of the weight of the fullness of the gospel and then charges us to be joyfully glad and that's what we're going to do. Christ unveiled, 7 and 8. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. What we see here is what Christ has accomplished. Christ came and his glory was not confounded to Jerusalem only. His glory 
was bigger than Jerusalem, his glory will fill the earth. And in his death and resurrection, he takes away the blindness of the people. We read this in 2 Corinthians. This is a heavily quoted passage in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 3.15 Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But which one, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When the law of Moses was read, the people of Moses would put a, a veil over his head because he, of that moment where he was shining in glory. And this is applied to the actual people's hearts. They were blind to their sin. But what this passage is telling us in Isaiah 25 is that it has full, fully accomplished what it set out to do. The law of Moses is no longer something we can't understand. Just think for a moment. I believe most of us here aren't Jews. None of us, if you are, that's good for you. But we are all likely Gentiles and in the old covenant, unlikely to be saved. We were unlikely to be God-fearing people. And all of us today have come to know our sin and come to know the holiness of Christ. We know that we agree with Isaiah uh, Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead means you couldn't change yourself. You were stuck there in the habit of sinful rebellion against the living, holy God. And because of what Christ has done, the veil was lifted from your eyes and you understood that you were vile before God. This is what we all need to come to. Every single one of us needs to come to the fact that we have broken every one of God's laws and are therefore deserving of the just punishment of death. So that's the first part. The true riches of the gospel is that you are vile before God and you deserve death. And in verse 8 he says, and he will swallow up death forever. So Christ takes on death for us. He's buried, fully dead, as, I, as, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Properly dead in the human flesh. And he defeats death. Death is swallowed up today. Death is, is swallowed up today. It was swallowed up when Christ rose from the dead. We aren't waiting just for a future resurrection. We can take joy in the fact that though we die, those who believe in Christ, yet we will live. That promises for us today. I am the resurrection and the life. The promise is for us that when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we can, with Paul, the apostle, declare that death has been swallowed up in victory. See, he declares it in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. It's a declaration. It's already been happened. We've got to remember that we are speaking in the past tense, not always in the future tense. Yes, there are things still to come. Yes, there's still a wedding feast of, of the bride and his church. Yes, there's still death to be finally uh, ended for, for all time. But we have to recognize and rejoice in what Christ has already done. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
Death will confront us at some point in our life if it hasn't already. The valley of the shadow of death will loom closely to you. What will you say in that time? What will your hope be in that time? Whether it's you or a person that you love, how will you find joy in the day when the shadow of death is right over the top? The truth of the gospel is that even when the shadow of death looms over us, it's still a satisfying meal. It's still a meal that will satisfy us through something so hard. Through the death of the closest person in our life, or through us confronting death in the slow burn towards it ourselves. This is what we have to acknowledge as Christians. Our eyes have been unveiled, our blindness has been taken away. Death is no longer a threat to us. We are to be rivers of life-giving water, as John 7 says. And that is true. Death has been swallowed up and there is no victory in death. There is no sting of death anymore. Then the Christians, Christ's people, are to be glad people. Verse 9. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is a declaration. Because of this, because of 7 and 8, what are we to do? Or, or 6, 7 and 8, what are we to do? Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Even when the shadow of death leans so heavily on us. But, what day is this, right? On this day, it says, on that day. Is it the day when Christ returns? Or is it the day when He defeated death? I would argue that it's the day when he defeated death. Victory was had when he came to life. We now have the veil removed. We now have come out of our death state of simple disobedience. Christ had victory long ago when he rose from the dead. On that day, the veil was removed from our eyes and from all nations. Cannot all nations come to know God now? Is there a nation that is excluded from the gospel? Is there a people group that is excluded from the gospel today? Absolutely not. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, barbarian, slave or free, it doesn't matter. You can receive Christ. For Christ has won already. He was dead. He is alive. We have waited. We waited for the seed of Eve. We waited for him to have victory over Satan. Waited for him to have victory over death, and he has. And now it's a matter of joy unspeakable. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We are to share in the benefits of it, of it with re recurring joyful thanksgiving in our life. Yeah, the curse still lingers close by. 
which is why we must actively throw away sorrowful thoughts, defeatist thoughts, why we actively must say with Paul, as I've said, death has been swallowed up. We are to cast it into the grave of Christ and to pour the weight of the promises of God upon it. That is the beauty of the death, burial and resurrection. It is literally an application for how we fight against our sinful flesh. We put it to death. We bury it. And we bury it under the weight of the promises of God. And then we live in light of the promises of God. That's the resurrection. We put to death by burying it under the weight of the promises of God and we live in light of the promises of God. So if the promises of God say that there is no sting in death and no victory in death, we go on living as if death cannot harm us. Like David says in his great psalm of Psalm 23. We go on not in tradition or habit, but in active-minded fixation on the thoughts and meditations of the salvation that Christ has brought for us. So much of Christianity is mindless traditions, and it's not meant to be. We don't mindlessly come to church. We don't mindlessly pray. We don't mindlessly read the Bible. We have to be active in this because this is what we bury our flesh under. The truth of the Scriptures. Let us be glad and rejoice in what? In His salvation. In His salvation. In the richness and abundance of the Gospel. In all of it. We don't need to change it. Yes, there's offensive parts of the gospel, that's fine. Take it as it is, know that it will be glorious to you one day. And if it's about your neighbour, know that it will be glorious to them one day, if they are safe. Yeah. <coughs> one of the things that we are so often told, we saw this in 1 and 2 Peter, is how to think. And today, in our modern era, we don't like being told how to think, yet... Really, all the music we listen to, all the TV shows that we watch, all the movies that we entertain our mind with are actually teaching you what to think. The reason you think the way you do today is because someone has taught you to think that way. And we are meant to make our minds think according to the scriptures. We are not to be discipled by worldly psychology. We are to be discipled by the scriptures. And we always need to examine, well, where did I learn this from? Where did I learn how to use my money? Where did I learn how to work or rest? Where did I learn how to date or be married or be single or raise children? And probably what I found in my own life, it came from the stuff I watched as a teenager. We need to be careful what our mind is leaning, what our mind is filling up with, because it will determine how we think. And it will change the way we act in worship and in church and in our prayer life and in our relationships. So when the scriptures tell us that we are to rejoice, as Paul says, I say it again, rejoice. He's literally telling you what you are to think. When, when Peter says, 
Prepare your mind for action. The scriptures are telling you this Christian is how you are to think. This is how you are to, to, to process these things. So when we come to worship on a Sunday, when we come to Christmas family meals, we are to sit there and rejoice. Tell our mind to be joyfully glad in the salvation that Christ has brought us. And not in the company, not on the day, not in the feast, but in the richness of the gospel message. That's where our joy and gladness is, is, is found. Which means things can go wrong, right? Because that's consistent, that is stable, and other things can go wrong. The meal can be burned, the family can cancel, the day can change. And we can still have joyful gladness because we're not dependent upon those things. It's in Christ. It's in the feast of the gospel message. The final section, Christ's enemies. The first was that Christ has given us an abundant feast that is all satisfying. Secondly, we see that Christ has unveiled our eyes so that we can grasp our sinfulness and the gloriousness of Christ. He's swallowed up death so that we are secure. Third, we see that we have to rejoice in this salvation so that we are stable when other things go wrong. We are stable in our joyful gladness. And thirdly, we don't need to fear enemies. Verses 10 to 12. For the hand of the Lord will... Rest on him on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in this place, a straw is trampled down in the dunghill. And he will spread out his hand in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his wall, he will bring down, lay low, cast to the ground, to the dust. If we are to be those who are uh, glad and rejoicing in his salvation we need to have a hope that the world that we live in is not going to stay the way it is we have no doubt that if we were to just face everything of our experiences it is pretty rough at the moment out there for a Christian the world seems to be in a place that is anti-God and anti-God's law law uh, law but we need to be sure that Christ's enemies will be cast aside along with their skill. Moab was a cousin of Israel, if you know Lot's, Lot's child through his daughter. Moab was the cousin of Israel. They had times of peace and times of war, but ultimately they became the enemy of Israel and therefore the enemy of God. When we look at this, we see that there are enemies of God and there's still enemies of God today. All those who are not in Christ are enemies of God. We were once enemies of God. Those who remain as enemies of God will be trampled down. It doesn't matter how skillful they are. It doesn't matter how skillful the people of Australia are at, at, at framing things in their, their way. It doesn't matter if they set themselves to the consistent action of swimming with their skill. They are still going to be brought low in their pompous pride. As their hands are working at whatever they're working out, God is going to bring them low. They're towers that man can't touch. These fortified walls that we can't do anything against. 
Whether it's their latest psychology of children, their education, or whatever it may be, things that we find too big for us to touch, God is going to bring low, bring to the ground, bring to dust. There'll be nothing left of it. It'll just be grains of thoughts. It won't continue forever. In other words, Christ's enemies are exactly where Christ wants them. He knows where they are, and we are not to be discouraged. We are to be joyfully glad. Even if Australia continues to get worse, even if it looks like we are surrounded on enemies on every side, we are to trust in the Lord and know that His promise is that they will become as dust. Their skill, their work, will not prevail. So times may look grim in Australia for Christianity, but let us have a good morale, a hopefulness, because the Word tells us to. Let us not base everything on experience, but base it on the salvation that Christ has already won in His death and resurrection. He will cast His enemies to the ground. The pompous pride of Christ's enemies will be as dust, Barely a memory when they when God is done with them. So, church, this season of Christmas, as we prepare to ponder upon Christ and His incarnation, His virgin birth, may we have a joyfully glad heart, and may that take us through into next year as well. May we actively tell our minds what to think, and may we examine where our thoughts have come from. Are they educated by the scriptures or by the world that surrounds us? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you so much for your word that it has counsel for every area of life without fail. That it is the only word that has absolute authority in our life. We pray, Father, that you would Make us joyfully glad people. Make us those who rejoice in your salvation so that in the changing climate of our day we will not be rocked or moved away from joyful gladness. For our joy is founded upon you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.